No question is more important than this question, who is Jesus? How you answer this question will determine, of course, your eternal destiny. John 3.36 says, whoever believes, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him or abides on him. Now, history has recorded many different answers to the question, who is Jesus? In the fourth century, the heretic Arius suggested that Christ was neither eternal nor fully divine. Uh, the Docetists believed that Jesus never fully took on human flesh, that the body of Jesus was just an illusion. Uh, it seemed to be. That's where that word comes from. The Nestorians believed that the, the human and divine persons of Jesus remained separate. Uh, these are some of the early church heresies that existed um, back in Jesus' day and just after Jesus, I should say, lived. Now, of course, our day is no different. There are uh, alternative theories, as they're coined, about who Jesus is. The truth is, well, they're not really alternative theories. They're just heresies. They are contradictions to the truth. As Colossians 2.8 says, they contain empty deceit in line with human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. It has been suggested by these alternative theories that Jesus never truly existed as a historical figure, that the stories of Jesus as found in the Bible are simply borrowed from pagan religion. If you're a college student, maybe you're familiar with this uh, theory. The New Testament is merely, merely a collection of mythical retellings. The problem, of course, with this hypothesis is that there's no evidence of a pagan mystery religion in Israel at the time of Jesus or thereafter. In fact, if any borrowing happened, it probably happened the other way around. Others have suggested that Jesus was a failed prophet. Maybe you've heard this theory. Here some argue that Jesus wrongly predicted when God's kingdom would arrive. If Jesus was wrong, well then, he's just a failed prophet. The problem here is simply bad hermeneutics, at least that's how I would say it. Uh, those who believe this lie don't understand Jewish apocalyptic language, nor do they understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom. They just don't understand those things. Some believe that Jesus was just a moral philosopher. Here Jesus is accepted only as a wise teacher. The voice of Jesus is just another philosophical voice. Others have argued that Jesus was a violent revolutionary. Maybe you've heard of the zealots in the early church, or these Jews, the sect of Judaism, that were, they were called the zealots. They're like revolutionaries. That, that Jesus' message was in line with the zealot message and that his message was, was one of liberation from Rome. That's why Jesus came. Rudolf Boltman gave up entirely on this question, and he suggested instead that the, the purpose of the New Testament is existential. That's a fancy word. Uh, he, he proposed that the events of the New Testament are imaginative, and they are uh, irrelevant, essentially. What's important is the individual's experience with God's Word, his experience with God and his devotion to God. That's what's most important. You might say, Boltman drove a Mack truck through the history, through the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith. He separated the two. So who is this Jesus? Well, the Bible reveals that Jesus, in fact, was a historical figure. I think you believe that. He was a truth-telling prophet. He was more than a philosopher. He was certainly more than a revolutionary, although he was that in lots of ways. And the Jesus of history can never be separated from the Jesus of faith. Hebrews 1.3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. We learned last week, he is the God incarnate in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the one, in fact, that John declares and that we've learned about in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
Now, as we've proposed, and I've, I've sent some emails out and we've been talking about, in the month of October, I'd like to take up this question, who is this Jesus, or who is Jesus? I'm asking this question because I believe this is the question the Gospel of John is going to ask, ask us in the coming weeks. And while the answers are many, well, there are three that seem to rise to the surface in the opening chapter of John or chapters of John, and it's, it's this. Jesus is the Lamb of God, which we're going to see today. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And finally, Jesus is the Lord of glory. And so these are the things that we're kind of looking forward to in the coming weeks. All of this hopefully we'll do in the month of October. In our passage this week, we're going to discover the answer, the first answer to the question, who is this Jesus? And we're going to discover that through the eyes of John the Baptist. John will allow us to see who man is in light of all that Jesus is. So that's his unique kind of approach. We get to see who Jesus is in light of who man is. His life and ministry teach us about the order of things. As John 3.31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. It's through John's perspective that we'll, we will see ourselves in light of all that Jesus is. And so this morning we're going to, to look at two testimonies from John, and I think it's on the screen there, that will strengthen our perspective and help us rightly prize the Lamb of God. I don't know if that's the slide, if I'm seeing the right slide, or if that's, what slide? You're, yeah, that's the slide I want. That's good, yeah. Two testimonies from John that will strengthen our perspective and help us rightly prize the Lamb of God. If you haven't already, I would invite you to open your Bible to the Gospel of John, and as is our habit here at Rosedale Bible Church, if you would please stand at the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read this passage of Scripture. It's a little bit longer than some of our previous passages, and then I'm going to pray for our message. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie." These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. This is your holy scripture. God, as we stand before you, we pray, God, that your spirit would move. We pray, Lord, that your abiding Holy Spirit would so move in our hearts, Lord, that our perspectives about ourselves and our perspectives about you would forever be changed. Lord, meet us here in this moment as we unpack this passage of Scripture, Lord, as we work through the testimony of John, his testimony of himself and his testimony about who your son Jesus is, Lord, and use it in our lives to change us and to mold us into the image of your Son, Lord, not for our sake, but for your sake. And we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. 
There's no ceremony or formal introduction given to John the Baptist in this passage. John just throws us right into the story at the height of John's ministry. Other writers speak of John's appearances, his way of life, and where he lived. John doesn't give us any of that. He just assumes, I suspect, that we've already, we already know that from the other gospel writers. This interrogation, as we just read, the interrogation that we encounter in this text suggests that John's ministry has grown such to such proportions that it's drawn the attention of many people. In fact, the authorities are wanting to know who John is. It's at that moment, it's in the very moment that John is confronted by these authorities that the narrative begins. This interrogation or this confrontation is administered by Jews from Jerusalem, as we saw in verse 19. Apparently, these Jews sent priests and Levites to inquire of John, who are you? It's appropriate to call these priests and Levites the Sanhedrin. Maybe you've heard about this group of Jews. The word Sanhedrin simply means council, and it represents the group of 71 members that were the highest Jewish authority in John's day. This group was led by the high priest, and we know of this group because this is the group that actually led, uh, that was responsible for the arrest, the trial, and the condemnation of Jesus. Now, that being said, we don't actually, we don't often commend this group of people. In fact, we're usually throwing rocks at them because they're doing the bad things. Uh, However, with this interrogation, really the Sanhedrin, in fact, should be interrogating John. This is the legal group that should be asking, who are you? Why do you baptize? And so, if, as these reports of Messiah or the prophet had come, it would have been this group that would have investigated. And we have to keep in mind as well that there has been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. None of these men that are in the midst of this time have ever heard from a real prophet. And so, indeed, they should be interrogating John to find out who, in fact, he is. And so in verse 19, the interrogation gets underway. They question him, who are you? Now, to say these men asked such a question is is a little bit too light of a translation. Uh, The word is really associated with a formal inquiry. Uh, These men are doing more than asking. They're making a, a legal inquiry into the matter. And so it's at this point that we encounter John's testimony about himself. John knew four things about himself, and we're going to see that he knew four things about himself. He, he was in no way confused about his role. Look at verse 20. He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Again, this is somewhat like judicial language here, and it's, it's stressing the assurance of his own understanding. We have these three kind of ideas. He confessed. He did not deny, but confessed. The positive, negative, positive response really serves to underscore that John understood first, this is our first thing, who he wasn't. The first thing he testifies or knows about himself, who he wasn't. He says, I am not the Christ. John couldn't say it any stronger. It's right for us to suspect that there were rumors about who John was and that he was, in fact, the Christ. I think we've explored some of those in the past weeks. But it's clear that John had no part in spreading those lies, He knew who he wasn't. Now, if he is not the Christ, well, verse 21, and they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? So they asked him, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask, why would the Jews ask such a question? Why would they want to know if he is Elijah? Well, first off, we know that Elijah was a very significant prophet in Israel. In fact, he's only surpassed, you might say, if he's surpassed by anyone, it would be Moses. You remember the story of the transfiguration? Maybe you, re- maybe you remember that story. That's the time that Jesus took Peter and James and John up on that high mountain, and he became transfixed, as it says, before them. It's as if God somehow kind of flipped on a switch, and immediately these men saw Jesus in all that he really, truly was. They saw kind of the spiritual realities of who Jesus was. His face and his clothes became white as light. Matthew 17, 3 says, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Here's our friend Elijah. And he was talking with Jesus. Now, many have read into that, that Moses kind of represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, and that seems appropriate. 
But this certainly confirms the, the importance or significance that Elijah had in the minds of these early Jews. Elijah was that prophet that God used to cause a three-year drought in Israel. Maybe you remember that from the Old Testament. It was the, he was the prophet that God used to raise a widow's son from the dead. It was Elijah who faced the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. And it was Elijah that was miraculously taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. I'm sure you remember that. Elijah's name comes up again through the prophet Malachi. Malachi was the last prophet in the Old Testament, and he says in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, Behold, this is kind of the final word of, from the prophets in the Old Testament. In our Bible, it is the final word. He says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the Jews rightly waited for Elijah's appearance. They waited for his appearance from heaven to prepare the way for the messianic kingdom. The Jews did have good reason to believe that John the Baptist was Elijah. Mark 1.6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Of course, John doesn't tell us that. But 1 Kings 1.8 describes Elijah as wearing a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. They, they looked the same. They were out both out in the wilderness. In addition, John's warning of coming judgment echoed Elijah's warning from 1 Kings 18 and 21. They, they had the same kind of prophetic message. We have John's response in verse 21. Is he Elijah? Well, he says, I am not. I am not Elijah. John was not a resurrected Elijah. He was John. We know him as the son of Zechariah, son of Elizabeth. Yet, and although John makes no mention of it, there does appear a sense in which John was Elijah. And this is a little bit perplexing to us. Listen to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13. And the disciples asked Jesus, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Jesus answers them, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. It seems John the Baptist was not Elijah, but was, as I say, Elijah-like. He was Elijah-like. He came, as Luke 1.17 says, in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, we have no way of knowing to what extent John the Baptist understood all of this. What we do know is that John the Baptist answers honestly, I am not. He is not Elijah. He's John the Baptist. The interrogation continues. There's no interruption here. And so the immediate next question is, are you the prophet? Here we can only speculate what the priests and the Levites have in mind. It's possible they're speaking of the prophet that Deuteronomy 18 speaks of. It's possible even that they, they imagine that Jeremiah would be resurrected. There's kind of an early uh, first century idea that maybe Jeremiah was to be resurrected. So are you this prophet of Deuter Deuteron Deuteronomy 18? Are you Jeremiah returning to us? Whatever the case, John the Baptist's answer is no. No. And so in verse 22, we return to the initial question. He said, so they said to him, excuse me, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Well, John knew who he wasn't. <laughs> as we see, but John knew who he was as well, and so he replies to them. He says in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John replies with the words of Isaiah 40, 40 verse 3. The point or stress of this quote is that John is not an important person. He's merely a voice. He is no more than a voice, and so Although John may have called for repentance, and he did in fact do that, reform was not his primary function. That wasn't the main thing that he was there to do. The main thing he was there to do was to be a voice, to be a giant arrow pointing to Christ. Make straight the way of the Lord. Clear the path. Pull the weeds. 
Make each row straight and clean. Why? Well, because something great is at hand. Messiah is coming. So since John had denied that he was the Christ, that he had denied that he was Elijah or the prophet, the Pharisees wanted to know why he was baptizing. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John's answer reveals something else he knew. Well, he knew that he was to baptize. So this is the third thing he knew he was to baptize. Verse 26, he answers them, I baptize with water. I baptize with water. Now, this practice of baptizing was not one that the Jews were unfamiliar with. They knew about baptizing. In the case of Judaism, in the case of their religion, when Gentiles were converted to Judaism, the males would have been circumcised and the entire family would have been baptized. That was what they understood baptism to be, or, or in their context, that's what they saw. Baptism was seen as a ceremonial cleansing from the Gentile world. So Gentiles were baptized as they were, came to Judaism. So what made John's baptism different? What, what was it about John's baptism that caught the attention of the Pharisees? Well, John applied this practice to Jews. That was problematic. That was a big deal to them. That was a problem. The Pharisees would have no problem accepting that Gentiles needed cleansing, but to say that they needed cleansing, well, that was absurd. We don't need to be baptized. We're God's people. We're his chosen nation. We're a treasured possession. What could we possibly need cleansing from? In addition, you might remember Old Testament passages like Ezekiel 36 and Zechariah 13.1 that suggest that some kind of baptism or ritual clean cleansing will be a part of Messiah's coming. But John denied that he was the Messiah. There's a lot of questions here. So the Jews wanted to know, why are you baptizing? And why are you baptizing us? And so verse 26, we discovered that John not only knew who he was and who he was, but he also, as we said, he knew what he came to do, and that was to baptize. He came to baptize. We suspect that John might use this opportunity to, to compare his baptism with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He'll save that till later. At this point, he does not. It's just all he says is that he came to baptize with water. What he does instead of comparing him, what he does instead is compare himself to Jesus. Remember, as we've said in earlier messages, so much of this is about comparing or demonstrating that Jesus is superior to John the Baptist. Jesus is better than John the Baptist. So John says, verse 26 and 27, again, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He knew who he wasn't. He knew who he was. He knew he was to baptize. And finally, he knew he was unworthy. This task that he speaks of, of untying or loosing a sandal, was done, of course, by a slave, as you might suspect. In order to understand all that John is saying here, we have to know something about the way, the relationship between a teacher and his disciple in John's day. It was customary for disciples to do certain tasks for their teachers. Uh, teachers were not paid. Rather, their dis disciples would, would perform some kind of service for them. But where would these services end? Where would the rabbis draw the line? Or I should say, where would the disciples draw the line? What services were out of bounds? What services were inappropriate? Well, here's a rabbinic saying from antiquity. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. This is the one thing that a disciple wouldn't do. It's too lowly. This is the service of a slave. So we see there's a limit placed on the service a disciple might perform for his teacher. And John puts his finger on that exact task. He selects the very service the rabbis stated was too low for any disciple, and he declares himself unworthy to perform it. In, in light of the greatness of Christ, John has a, a very accurate view of himself. He is unfit even for the lowliest of duty. 
And this greatness is not far off. It's not far away. This isn't merely lip service. John declares in verse 26 that this one stands in their midst. He is among them. Now, John has a very interesting way of making this point. The, the grammar, the perfect tense, and the stated verb together serve to really um, or em, underline or emphasize the fact. He stands in your very midst. It's as if he's underlining it. He's, he's, he's making a, a, an intense statement. He's right here. He's infinitely worthy. And he says, you don't know him. You don't know him. And so, verses 19 through 28, this first section here, we have John's testimony about himself. John knew who he wasn't. He knew who he was. He knew he was to baptize, and he knew he was unworthy. What about John's testimony about Jesus? Well, that's the next section. If, if John was not the Christ, who was? Furthermore, how might he be described, and how are we to identify him? Who is this Jesus. Well, verses 29 and following will teach us this. And we have a new day upon us in this verse. Uh, the interrogation has ceased. The curtain is pulled back. You might even say it's another act, if you want to put it that way. We find John the Baptist in a new place. There's a new setting. Somewhere ordinary, as I envision it. Somewhere common. Somewhere mundane. It's routine. He's walking through a village He's in a neighborhood. He's doing some kind of work. I don't know what it is. But in a moment, he looks up. He sees Jesus approaching, and he drops everything. And with outstretched arms, he looks out, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. What a tremendous title we have that is given to Jesus. And there's so much bound up in this title that I've chosen to name the message the Lamb of God. Even though there's so much more here. But we could make a whole sermon series on who this Lamb of God is. What I want to do this morning is I just want you to consider four pictures. Maybe you're in an art gallery. I don't know. And there's, you're in a room and there's four pictures in the, on the wall. There's four walls and there's four pictures. And so this room is entitled the Lamb of God. What, 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 what pictures might be on the wall? Well, as you enter this room, you look up and you see the first picture, and it's of the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb. This is the first picture. In John 2.13, we discover that the Passover festival was actually not far off in John's day. You remember the Jews were required to celebrate this holiday each year, the Passover when the Jews were enslaved by the Egyptians, they were instructed to take the blood of a slain lamb and smear it on the, door, the doorposts. On the night called Passover, the angel of de death walked through Egypt. If the blood was smeared, the angel would, of course, pass over that house. If not, the angel would step in and kill the firstborn son, the firstborn of the family. And it was on that night the Jews were delivered from Egypt. You remember Pharaoh was so distressed that he lost his son and all of the sons of the Egyptians that finally Pharaoh broke and let the people go. They were freed from their bondage. So with the, the Passover celebration so close, you can imagine that these, these words would have had more power in John's day. To call Jesus the Lamb of God is to say that by his sacrifice, there is deliverance from both oppression and death. That's kind of what this picture gives us, this Passover lamb painting. Paul calls Jesus the Passover lamb as well in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Again, this picture highlights the deliverance that Jesus wins for us. There's a second picture in this room, and it's over here in my mind. It's a picture of the temple sacrifices the temple sacrifices. John the Baptist would have been very familiar with this picture. You, remember, you recall who his dad was, right? His dad was a priest. He was the son of a priest. He knew much about temple sacrifices. Every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. Every day, there was a stack of smoke ascending to heaven that perpetually reminded the Jews that atonement was needed. 
It never went away from them. It was always a part of their community. As the book of Hebrews declares, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God is so holy. We are so unclean. He is so common, or uncommon, excuse me, and we are so common that something must die. A death must take place. And through that death, access to God. Of course, as pure as a lamb might be, well, it's still a lamb. Therefore, a lamb could never fully and finally atone for sin. There is no lamb that might be the final lamb, one that might forever appease the judgment of God and fill up the holiness of God. There is no lamb like that. Not on this earth there is, that is. Of course, God himself, if, if in fact God himself were to offer a lamb, a lamb like no other, a lamb without spot, without stain, a lamb that might be called, in fact, the lamb of God, that lamb might be able to purchase our redemption. He might be the final lamb. This picture is probably what most of us think about when we hear that phrase, the Lamb of God, or that title. If the Passover lamb reminds us of deliverance, the second picture reminds us that Jesus is the sacrifice that delivers us from sin. They overlap, but they're different. They have a different emphasis. Now, this is especially true because John says it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The idea of taking away a removal of sin combined with a picture of the lamb really stresses the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, which means that Jesus is the one that took on the consequences of sin as our substitute, and he did so in order that our guilt might be removed. That's what that phrase, substitutionary atonement, means. And it's this guilt or sin that is completely carried away. He takes it away. It is removed entirely. Jesus has altogether removed it by dying in our place. He was a lamb to the slaughter. He is the lamb of God. For this lamb will not again lay down its burden, will not carry its burden indefinitely, but will take it completely away. It is finished in every sense. So Paul can write in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He's the one who hung on the tree. He received the curse of God as our substitute. Jesus himself will make the same point to Nicodemus later in John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And what exactly does he take away? The sin of the world. The sin of the world. Singular. It's important. Notice he says sin and not sins. With the, sing, uh, with the singular, John is stressing the totality of the world's sin, not the number of individual sins. Isaiah 53 comes to mind. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was stricken for the transgression of his people. His soul makes an offering for guilt. He bore the sin of many. We can see the, the completeness of Christ's atonement. The death of Jesus is sufficient for all. However, it does not mean that does not mean that it affects us all. Otherwise, we would all be saved. The death of Jesus is sufficient for all, yet only those who believe will find its effect, which is why, friends, we have to be desperate to reach the lost. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's a third picture it's similar to the first two, but it's a little different. It's on the other wall. Remember, we're in a, we're in a room of paintings, right? The third picture is, the, is of the prophetic nature of the Lamb, 
the prophetic nature of the lamb. Jeremiah 11.9 says, but I was like a gentle lamb to the slaughter. Isaiah 53 again, verse 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If the Jews listening to John were paying attention, they might realize that John is claiming that these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, that Jesus is that suffering servant found in the Old Testament. There's a prophetic nature to what, G, what John is saying by calling Jesus the Lamb of God. And so he's the Passover lamb. He's the temple sacrifices. He's the, the prophetic revelation, the final prophetic revelation of, of the suffering servant. Now there's a final picture. It's behind us. We have to turn around to see it. Not really, but in my mind. It's different than the others. We don't notice it right away because it's different. We always equate a lamb with something that's helpless or meek, which is appropriate. Yet in John's day, the lamb had another connotation. There was a picture of a, we might call it a horned lamb. So behind us, there's a painting of a horned lamb. This, this was a symbol used to depict a great conqueror. In the first century, Samuel, David, and Solomon were described using this imagery. In fact, if we fast forward to the book of Revelation, the same author, John the Apostle, he gives us such a picture. We see the Lamb of God standing on God's throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders with seven horns and seven eyes. Jesus in Revelation has seven horns because he has complete power. We know the horn is a symbol of strength. He has seven horns. He has complete and ultimate power. The lamb with seven horns is therefore an all-powerful warrior and king. And so we have four pictures that would fill the mind of the, these first century Jews in the hearing of, behold, the lamb of God. He's the Passover lamb. He's the temple sacrifices. He's the prophetic witness. And finally, he's the horned lamb. These pictures help to fill out everything those listening might have thought, or thought of when they heard the lamb of God. Jesus is also the preexistent one. This comes in verse 30. I'll have to move quickly here uh, to get through the rest of this here if I'm not moving fast enough for you. Uh, verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Now, this is the very same thought that we already uh, read in verse 13. We, it's a repeating of essentially the same verse. And as a reminder, two weeks ago when we read that verse, I, I argued that, Jesus, that John is not primarily stressing status with this verse. He's, he's emphasizing the pre-existence of Jesus, that he was actually before John. That's the focus, the, the idea, the sense of this thought. Now, I admit it's hard to speak of pre-existence or timelessness without mention of status. If someone was before, he is Superior, And so that's wrapped up in the idea, although the, the focus or primary uh, focus of this is that Jesus is the preexistent one. He is the lamb. He is the preexistent one. And then verses 32 and verse 33, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus, John gives us a strong witness here in this verse. He says he saw something miraculous. He saw it with his own eyes. He saw the Spirit of God descend out of the sky like a dove. You and I know that a dove is a very friendly creature. It's not like a hawk or an eagle. It's friendly. Both in our day and in John's, the dove was a symbol of peace and gentleness, even purity and innocence. In Israel, the dove was a sacred bird. It was neither hunted nor eaten. It was used for sacrifices. In fact, God's spirit was, was loosely connected to the bird. You, you, you may remember in that creation narrative, God's spirit... Uh, was hovering over the face of the waters in a similar, like a, like a bird or a dove would. 
Ancient rabbis used to say, the Spirit of God moved and fluttered like a dove over the ancient chaos, breathing order and beauty to it. And so it seems quite appropriate that John would compare the Spirit's presence upon Jesus to that of a dove. Now, it's significant that John says the Spirit remained on Jesus. The Spirit of God came upon men only, in the Old Testament, excuse me, the Spirit of God came upon men only for special occasions. And Prophet Micah says, But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. The prophet, in quoting that verse, would receive the Spirit in the moment of prophecy. It would come upon him, it would fill him in that moment, but then it would leave after that prophecy was gone. In the case of Saul, David, and Solomon, the Spirit comes upon them in the moment of prophecy for great strength or for great courage. Maybe you remember, in fact, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when, when Samuel anoints David, the Spirit rushed upon him. And in that very next verse, it says, the Spirit departed from Saul. That's how the Spirit moved and worked in the Old Testament. Maybe you recall the, the words from David in Psalm 51, 11. Cast me not away from, from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He says the Holy Spirit can be removed from him. Lord, don't take the Holy Spirit away from me. Well, in the time of David, the Spirit had no abiding presence. It didn't stay on a person. But you see, something different is with Jesus, and we see that here. It's right to say that David was a type of Christ, but, but at this point, the two branch off. There's something dissimilar between David and Jesus. The, John says that the Spirit remained on Jesus. John goes out of his way to say that the, the Holy Spirit stayed or dwelt or took up residency on Jesus. The Holy Spirit entered the life of Christ once for all, permanently and powerfully, in his full manifestation and unlimited power. And what does this mean? This means that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He's the one that was promised both to Israel and to the Gentiles. Now, John told us earlier that he baptized with water. Here in verse 33, we see that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, the word baptism, baptizo, we, we know baptism. We know what it means. We're familiar with it. it. It really has the idea of to dip or to submerge. The word is used to describe clothes that are dipped in dye. You know, those clothes go all the way into that dye. It's used of, of a ship that is submerged into the waves. Uh, it's even used of a drunk person who's soaked in drink. All of these kind of first century ideas. When you think about the way the word is used, there, then it's striking to hear G, uh, John say that Jesus baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. That is striking. What this means is that Jesus can bring Bring God's Spirit to us in such a way that we are soaked in it, that life is permeated with it, that we're saturated with His Spirit, that our mind and our life and our being are flooded with the Spirit of God. So I can in this moment say, Lord, help me, because I need your help. I need your Spirit. He empowers us. Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He fills us. Acts, or Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for this is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He illuminates us. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 13. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. He leads us. Romans 8.14, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. He produces fruit in our lives, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit. You know it, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He empowers us. He fills us. He illuminates. He leads us. He produces fruit. Many more things we could say. He strengthens us. Ephesians 5, 16. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. All this is true because Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. By the way, 
that prayer from David in Psalm 51, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from you, that is a very Old Testament prayer. That's a very Old Testament prayer. That's not a New Testament prayer. We could never pray such a prayer. We wouldn't because the, the removal of the Holy Spirit is not part of the new covenant. In fact, the, the, one of the major features of the new covenant, the New Testament, is that you have the abiding Holy Spirit, that it takes up residence in, residency in you, and it can't be removed. So when we read that, we think back to the, the, an old time because you can never be, the Holy Spirit can never be removed from you. It's an abiding presence. Romans 8, 9 and 11, you however are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, takes up residency in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, his uh, dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All that, what, what that's saying is that the fact that the spirit abides in you and dwells in you means that your body will be raised anew after you die. It's a promise. It's a guarantee of your inheritance. If the Holy Spirit could be removed, we would have no assurance that we would be raised from the dead, that we would have new life. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you're God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6.19-20 reminds us, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. One of the major arguments Paul makes for holy living is the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You're a temple of the Lord. Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is preexistent, and he is Messiah. Oh, excuse me, preexistent Messiah, and he is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. John gives us one additional testimony about Jesus, verse 34. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the climax of John's testimony. And, of course, this title, Son of God, has a special place in John's gospel. You remember the purpose statement. It's this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Such an expression points to the closest personal relationship with the Father. He is the Son of God, and it's certainly an assertion of the deity of Christ. So we have two testimonies. We have two testimonies in this passage, we have John's testimony about himself and a testimony about Jesus. What does John's testimony about himself teach us about ourselves? This is a closing question. If, you, if, if I challenged you to capture everything that John said in one word, what would it be? Maybe looking at that, that passage and thinking, what is, if I had to circle one word, one phrase, in all of John's testimony, what would it be? I challenged myself with that question, and I was drawn to verse 27. John says, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Unworthy. That's, that's, my, that's my word. That's what I choose. What, what John's testimony does for me is to help me see that I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. And in this way, John's testimony is trouble. It is trouble. It reveals a problem. If I'm not worthy, well, who is? What does John's testimony teach me about Jesus? Same challenge. You got to circle one word. What, what idea comes to mind? What's the thing that rises to the surface? For me, it's verse 29. Behold, 
the Lamb of God. It's the Lamb. So unworthy Lamb. On the one hand, John's testimony is trouble, but on the other, his testimony is tremendous. It is absolutely tremendous. There is an unsearchable grace in this title, Lamb of God. It's unsearchable. There's no way we could ever reach the end of it. One final thing. As I close, John was unworthy and we are unworthy. Jesus is worthy. He is tremendous. He is the Lamb of God, yes. But in the middle of that, John had a task. He, he, even though he was not worthy, he was given something important to do. In fact, Jesus says later, I, I mean, he says that of, of men born, of people ever who have lived in the world, John the Baptist was the greatest. Wow. That, just thinking about that is amazing in light of how John talks about himself. John had a task. He was called to a, ta- a task, even if it was just a voice. And God has called us to a task. He has, he has given us a mission. You and I have a mission. What is our mission? Well, I see our mission this way. First, it's that we are to exalt God. We're to worship him. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We exalt in God. Second part of our mission is that we edify. We edify the saints. Ephesians 4, 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's, what, that's why we're here. That's why we have Sunday school classes. That's why we have growth groups. That's why we pray together. That's why we're singing songs together and we're preaching here to edify the saints, to do the work of the ministry. We exalt God, we edify the saints, and finally, we evangelize the lost. This is, our, this is our calling, this is our mission. This is the great commission, in fact. You might put this banner over everything because the wrath of God abides on those who don't know Jesus. And so, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 19. Our mission, our task, we have one just like John did. Even though we're unworthy, he is worthy. He's called us to these things, to worship him, to exalt him, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. It's my hope that these two testimonies have strengthened our perspective on ourselves and our God. And in the end, that we might, together as a church, prize the Lamb of God. And I believe prizing him means we accomplish our mission to exalt, edify, and to evangelize the saints. Amen.